Amen. I want to invite you this morning to please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to read our text this morning, then we'll pray together and continue our time of worship as we look into God's Word. Luke chapter 1, and our text begins in verse 57. Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Father, we acknowledge this morning that this is your word. It is true, and it contains truth that we need to hear today. Lord, I pray that you would give us a clear mind and an open heart, give us an increased hunger to know you, to behold your glory in the scriptures. And I pray that you would minister to us, that your spirit would expose our sin, that you would comfort us in our suffering, that you would point us to Christ and fill us with joy as we behold your great salvation. Amen. There is a lot of joy in this text. And if you allow yourself to sort of be sucked into the story, if you allow yourself to, to, to be there, and to be immersed in it, you, you see this joy, you see it on the faces of the amazed neighbors 
as an old woman gives birth to a son and a man who's been deaf and mute for nine months suddenly speaks. You see this joy in the obedience of Zechariah and Elizabeth as they name their son. And you can hear the joy in the song of Zechariah. And that joy resonates with us. We were made to experience joy. We all desire to experience joy. We long for it. We pursue it. And we experience no shortage of difficulty and disappointment and pain when sometimes that joy seems out of reach. The problem is that we live in a broken world. The problem, the reason why joy can be so difficult is that there's problems out there. There is evil, there is um, um, a, a fallen world where death and cancer and loss and heartache exists, where life is just difficult and often painful. But the problem is also in here. We don't just live in a broken world, we are broken people who deal with the internal corruption of our own sin. All of this makes joy very difficult. What are we to do? There's problems outside of us and problems inside of us, and we can't fix any of them. Many of us have tried. But the good news is while we're not able to solve this problem, God is. He is able to deal with the problems out there and the problems in here. Yes, we're a broken people. We live in a broken world and there's nothing we can do about it. But God has entered in. Salvation has come to us from outside of us. God has shown mercy. He has sent his son, Jesus. And in the song of Zechariah, we see this truth that there is joy found in the salvation that God provides. We see it fleshed out in this majestic poetry, in this inspired song that Zechariah sings. God's provision of salvation, that is the source of sustained joy. If you want to experience joy, a joy that isn't dependent on the circumstances around you, your own performance, the problems that we face, the the hope we have for joy is in looking outside of ourselves and even past our circumstances and beholding by faith the salvation that God has provided. That is something to sing about. Luke introduced us earlier on in chapter one to this elderly couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zachariah is a priest. He's a holy man who serves God. He's faithful. His wife is a godly wife. They are godly people, but they had no children. They were barren, and they were far beyond the the childbearing years. But one day, Luke tells us, when it was Zachariah's turn to go into the temple, he's been given the privilege, that's a once in a lifetime privilege, of offering incense to the Lord in the temple. Well, he enters in and he sees this angelic vision. Gabriel speaks to him, gives him this message, which obviously terrified Zachariah, but the angel assured him he was not there to pronounce judgment. He was there to bring good news, to deliver a message that Zachariah and Elizabeth would have a son. And if that wasn't enough good news, the good news was that this son was actually preparing the way for the Messiah, that God was working. This 400-year period of silence where they hadn't heard any prophets, any visions, nothing for 400 years in Israel, that silence is shattered as the announcement is made that they would have a son who would fulfill this Elijah-like role, this prophetic role of preparing the way for the Messiah. And this was amazing news. In fact, it was so wonderful that Zechariah found it hard to believe. 
and his slowness to trust in the word of the Lord resulted in some discipline for him. The angel told him that he would be deaf, he would be mute, he would sit in silence for nine months. But eventually the time came for his wife to give birth. And that brings us to our text today, to verse 57 in this very long chapter in the beginning of Luke's gospel. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. Now this would have been a big time happening in a small town. Uh, By what we can tell, it seems that they lived somewhat in a rural setting, Uh, a small village, it's not even named. Um, So some of you guys grew up in a small town. Maybe some of you live now in a small town. And you know that anything interesting that happens in a small town is everybody's business, right? So it definitely would have been the case here. Um, It wasn't just a big deal for their family, but for the whole community. Verse 58 tells us that her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. They recognized God's mercy and they rejoice. Already here, we see a little hint at this theme that Luke is trying to teach us, that joy is found in recognizing what God is doing in providing salvation. Now, all these people knew was that this very old woman was having a baby, and that was a reason to rejoice. Uh, And they join in with Elizabeth as she is rejoicing. But then they sort of have a bit of an argument. Verse 59, um, the day comes to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zechariah after his father. Uh, If you've ever had to name kids, you know there's a little bit of thought that goes into that. But they didn't have any sonograms. Um, You know, the the people didn't. They didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. Zachariah and Elizabeth knew because the angel had told them. They already knew what the name was. But everybody else was assuming they would follow the pattern of that day, which was you wait a week or so, and and you have this ceremony, and then you settle on a name. And they're going to call him Zachariah after his father. It was very typical in those days to pick a family name usually a grandfather or or someone in the family line, and especially so if you had someone of great significance or importance in your family. You'd be proud of that name. You'd want that name to be carried on. And so for someone who is a priest, who everyone knew had seen some sort of vision in the temple, that's a big deal. That made Zachariah a somebody, and they assume they're going to call him little Z. I mean, this is going to be junior. He's going to be Zachariah. After his father, what else would you call him? And Elizabeth is adamant. She says, no, he shall be called John. In the Greek language, this is like super abrupt. No, she cuts them off. It's like mid-sentence. They're starting to call him Zechariah. They're starting to call him Junior. And she silences everyone and says, no, stop it. He will be called John. They're confused by this. And she's like, I don't know what Elizabeth is doing, but let's ask dad because he's the patriarchal head of the home. It's ultimately his decision what they're going to call this kid. And if they're not going to name him after Zechariah, doesn't that dishonor him? So they go to Zechariah and they have to get him this writing tablet because he can't speak. He's been silenced. And he writes, verse 63, his name is John. And this is emphatic. In fact, in the, in the Greek language, the word John is the first word. John is his name. So Elizabeth is firm. Zechariah is adamant. The case is closed. His name is John. John means that God is gracious or, or the Lord will be gracious. That's the meaning of this name. It's a very fitting name. But they name him John because of far more than just personal preferences or, or because they liked the name. This is a matter of obedience. Remember, the angel had given them this command from, from God that they would call his name John. 
And this is their joyful obedience. Their joy is expressed by gladly doing what God has told them to do. And their joyful obedience will not be hindered just because all these people are confused and don't understand. I think this shows us a big change in Zechariah. Remember when he saw that vision, um, he had been hesitant. He had been doubtful. But here, he's not hesitant or doubtful. He is resolute. For nine months, apparently, he'd had a lot of time to think, a lot of time to reflect, a lot of time to ponder, a lot of time to, to let it, really let it sink in exactly what God was doing. And his faith had been strengthened. And the naming of John makes that clear. And notice what, ha- what happens. As soon as he gives this message that his name is John, look at what happens in verse 64. Immediately, his mouth is opened, his tongue is loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. The first thing out of Zachariah's mouth, after nine months of being quiet, is worship. The first thing that comes from his lips is praise to God. His joy overflows into a joyful song. And it says here that he spoke blessing God. And and the content of that speech, the content of that blessing is what we find in verse 68 through 79. It's recorded for us, this song of Zechariah. And it tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 67. That he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This blessing of God, this worship that he gives is divinely inspired praise, which means that this is the first public revelation of God in 400 years. Remember, Zechariah heard what the angel said, but he's the only one. So as far as other people know, God has still been silent for 400 years. But now Zechariah praises God and this, this prophetic song bursts forth. And so notice the impact of all this in verse 65 great fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The people are amazed. They are awestruck. They recognize that something big is happening. This old man saw a vision in the temple. This, and he came back speechless. He couldn't even speak because of it. This old woman has given birth in our midst and they named him John for some crazy reason. And now this old man is speaking. He's speaking now after nine months and it has the flavor of the Old Testament prophets. All the people recognize something big is going on. God is on the move. They recognize in verse 66 that obviously God's hand is upon this child. So what is going to happen next? There's all this anticipation that is building, anticipation that's building as it should toward the coming of the Messiah. So remember, we want to tell this story and and get the truth out of this story. But remember, Luke is telling us about the life of Jesus Christ, the good news that salvation comes through Jesus. So all of this fits into that bigger picture. And Luke is helping us see how God is at work. The anticipation is building, not just for the birth of John, but for the birth of Jesus. And not just for the birth of a boy, but the salvation that God would bring through that child. All of that is bound up within this story and within this song. So I want to dig into the song itself this morning. The story is fairly simple. But I want to dig into this song and what stands out to me as we look at it. Maybe put yourself in Zachariah and Elizabeth's shoes. 
What would you be excited about? Uh, What would you be celebrating in that moment? If you had longed for a child, if you had borne the stigma of barrenness, everybody thought there must be something wrong with you. Everybody thought that God must be displeased with you. And now all of that has been reversed. You will have a child and everyone knows that God is blessing you. But in Zechariah's song, he barely even mentions his own son. And when he does, he doesn't seem to focus on how that's going to affect him and his wife and their family and their legacy and their inheritance and and all of that. He's actually seeing a way bigger picture. He knows that their small story, this old couple, as important and real as that is and as kind as God has been to them, he knows that they're part of something way bigger. And they are not the main characters. And their little story is not really the main storyline, but they're being swept into this thing that God is doing. Their neighbors see the mercy of God in giving an old couple a son. So the neighbors rejoice with them. But Zechariah sees the mercy of God in giving salvation. Salvation to those who desperately need it. And so Zechariah rejoices with an even greater awe, a greater wonder, a deeper joy than all the people that were gathered there to celebrate this little baby. Listen, God's provision of salvation is our source of sustained joy. And the joy that Zechariah had that day is joy that you and I can have as well. And if we want to share in his joy, If we want to sing songs like this, then we need to look to God's provision of salvation. In the song of Zechariah, we find three truths about God's salvation that produce this joy. And those are three truths I want to share with you this morning. The first is this. Number one, God's power accomplishes his salvation. God's power accomplishes his salvation. Let's jump into this song. You'll see it here. Notice the three descriptions of God's mighty works. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Notice these three terms. He has visited, redeemed, and raised up a horn of salvation. This word visitation Um, It has this idea of of coming into a situation to accomplish a specific purpose. Uh, The same way that perhaps in the old days, uh, a doctor might make his rounds and call in on someone who is sick. He's visiting for a purpose. Zachariah knows that God has showed up. And he has showed up to meet our needs. He has showed up for a specific purpose. There is no other explanation for his wife's pregnancy than the power of God. Um, 85-year-old women don't get pregnant unless God is doing something, right? Unless he is performing some sort of miracle and God does those miracles to accomplish his plan of salvation. Zechariah knows that. This word visitation can be good news or bad news. Sometimes God visits to bring judgment, but sometimes God visits to bring salvation, And and Zechariah knows that God has visited in order to redeem his people, verse 68, to redeem them, to purchase them, to rescue them, to save them. God has come to bring salvation. That is why he is blessing God, because of this great power that is being exercised and because of what that power is producing. It's redemption, salvation. 
He says in verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This imagery of a horn, that he has raised up a horn of salvation. That's not ways that we typically speak these days, but it's a very common expression in the Old Testament. The imagery of a horn is used in the Old Testament to picture strength, to picture power, to signify victory. It was often used to describe strong rulers and kings. That's why when you read the book of Daniel, you see all these visions about creatures with horns, and this horn breaks that horn, and there's all these horns. That's significant of power and of victory over enemies. So don't think, when you read horn in this passage, um, don't think of like in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, some of you kids know those stories. You know Mr. Tumnus, the fawn who has the little horns. Don't think about those kind of horns. Think about like a Texas longhorn. Like think about a big, massive, 1,700-pound bull. You know that, that phrase, you mess with a bull, you get the horns? Amen. We say that because the horns cause damage, right? Those horns are used to throw rodeo clowns, like 20 feet in the air. So when he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us, this is an imagery of power. This is about conquering and and destroying both threats and rivals. That's what horns are for, destroying threats and rivals. But imagine if that horn is not being used against you. It's being used on your behalf. That's what Zechariah is celebrating, that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's an amazing thing. God exercises his strength and his power on our behalf to save us. Zechariah and the people of Israel longed for this redemption. They were suffering at this time under Roman oppression. And God had been silent for centuries. But now God was sending the Messiah who would be the king of kings. The one who would triumph over all their enemies and bring in lasting peace. And you can see that Zechariah has this big picture in mind. Verse 71, this horn of salvation has come just like God promised. Why? so that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. Remember all the problems that are out there? Remember all the threats, the the oppression, the the things that, that keep us from experiencing joy, the dangers, the destructive powers and forces at work in the world. Zechariah knows God is stepping in and he's gonna handle all that by his power. So often we think about salvation as God rescuing us and taking us out of a world that is so hostile to us. But really salvation is God entering into the world, overcoming it, renewing it, and redeeming it. It's an invasive grace. It's a triumphant power. Yes, Jesus is the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of Judah, and he will be the one who comes in to establish God's kingdom and defeat all his enemies, which brings relief and brings peace for all of God's people. We can rejoice because God's power accomplishes his salvation. God's power accomplishes his salvation. You have to believe that, that your joy is not dependent 
upon your circumstances, that your joy is not at risk because of all of these threats and all of these opposing powers. Your joy is secure in the powerful salvation that God provides. A second truth, God's promise guarantees his salvation. His promise guarantees his salvation. People make and break promises. Politicians do it all the time. It's even more painful when it hits close to home, when it's a family, when it's a marriage, when it's a boss who promised you a raise and then changes his mind. People break promises all the time, but God never does. He always, always keeps his word. Look at the repeated emphasis on this in this passage. God is doing this. God is bringing this salvation, according to verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Look at verse 72. He's doing this to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. To remember here is not just awareness in his mind. It is acting in faithfulness based on what he promised in the past. Look at verse 73. God is doing this in order to keep the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. This emphasis on God's word, on God's promise, on God's covenant, on God's oath, it's meant to remind us that God always keeps his promises and he always will. So what was the content of these promises? It's really pretty amazing here. In this song, we have almost a summary of all the covenants in the Old Testament. And we don't have time to do an exhaustive explanation of a complete biblical theology of the Old Testament. That'd be a lot of fun. But today we'll just give a high-level overview. And the first promise he mentions is the promise to David. In verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He's visited, redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, when Zechariah makes mention to David here, he's saying much, much more than just, oh, we're from the tribe of Judah, and this is the house of David. When you see that name, David, surfacing here, it brings with it all these expectations of God's promise to David, a promise of an eternal king. We see this promise in 2 Samuel 7, a king who would rescue God's people, a king who would rule in righteousness, a king who would crush their enemies with a rod of iron. You see, the salvation that God promised is not just some abstract salvation that's sort of generically accomplished. It is a specific victory that is accomplished through a divine instrument. And that divine instrument is the Messiah, the Davidic king, the, the root of Jesse, the one who is descended from David. So for an oppressed people, this kingship, this Davidic promise, it meant liberation. For them, it meant a great reversal that those who had always been trampled on would one day become triumphant because they had a king and their king would win. Their king was the horn of salvation. So there's all of this promise here that's being fulfilled. Zechariah recognizes we're not just getting a kid. God's fulfilling his promise to David. That's what's going on here. Not only is God fulfilling his promise to David, he's also fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. You see, the promise to David is actually built on and, and flows from an older promise, a more ancient promise, a promise to a man named Abraham that God would bless him. 
and bless his family, make him a great nation, and that through this family, through this nation, blessing would be given to all the nations, all the families of the earth. This is the promise that is underneath and behind the Davidic covenant. The promise to David simply details how that blessing would be carried forth. And God had sworn based on an oath, an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that nothing, nothing would keep him from fulfilling this promise. This promise of blessing is binding, it is unconditional, and it's eternal. God had promised to bless them and Zechariah realizes God's on the move, God's doing something. He's raising up the king, the Messiah, who will fulfill the Davidic covenant. And, and through that, this older promise of blessing is going to be realized. The goal of this, all of this, is worship. You look in verse 74. God's keeping this promise to David, bringing the blessing promised to Abraham. Why? So that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The reason that God blesses, the reason that God rescues, the reason that God redeems is so that we might serve him without fear. And the fear that's being referenced here is the fear of their enemies, the fear of their oppressors, the fear of violence, the fear of destruction. They will be able to worship God freely without any fear of all of that because the Davidic king is coming to bring blessing to the nations. Remember the, the words that God told Moses to, to tell Pharaoh? Let my people go. Why? So that they might serve me. The goal of salvation is always worship. Whether it's rescuing slaves from Egypt or whether it's bringing uh, salvation for us today, God's desire is that we would worship him. The promise of blessing here to Abraham has as its goal a people who worship, a people who are uh, a, a holy people so that we might serve him without fear, according to verse 75, in holiness, meaning that we're set apart to this purpose. We're his people and we give him the glory and that we do this in righteousness before him all our days a people who worship God and who live according to his word. That's what God is busy building. That's what God is busy doing, rescuing a people so that they can worship him in holiness and in righteousness. But here's the problem. We're not very holy. The problem is we don't walk in righteousness. So yes, we experience hostility and adversity from our enemies. There's a lot of problems out there. But in order for God's purpose to be accomplished, the problem in here has to be dealt with as well. But God's promises speak to this need as well. He doesn't just reference the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. In verses 76 through 79, I think we see reference to another promise in the Old Testament, a promise that's meant to deal with the internal problem, and that's the new covenant, forgiveness of sin. Look in verse 76. He says, and you, child... He finally now starts talking about John. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Salvation to his people 
in the forgiveness of their sins. The salvation that they needed was not just rescue from enemies out there. It was also forgiveness for the sin that is in here. This is the promise of the new covenant. The Old Testament speaks of this new covenant. It it comes with a new heart and it brings reconciliation to God. Let me read for you from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. This is a longer text, but I want you to listen and, and catch a glimpse of the expectation and the need that these people had. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. They couldn't keep the Mosaic Covenant. They couldn't keep the law. All it did was remind them on a daily basis of their sin. It exposed their sin. So salvation would require more than just rescuing them from enemies. It would require reconciliation with God. Their sin separated them from God. And this forgiveness that they needed would be provided by God. And it would be provided through his son, Jesus. The death of Jesus on the cross would atone for their sins. It would secure for them forgiveness. That's how redemption would happen. They would be purchased and bought back with the blood of God's own son. His sacrifice would show God to be both just in punishing sin and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, just like Romans 3.26 tells us the salvation that was coming to them, salvation for God's people included, verse 77, the forgiveness of their sins, just like the prophets had promised. This is the new covenant. The coming of Jesus fulfills all of these promises, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, and the promise of a new covenant. This is good news. Deuteronomy 7, 9 tells us God always keeps his promises. He always fulfills his covenant. It says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. God keeps his promises. Salvation is accomplished for us by a faithful God. And this is the basis for our joy. We know that God always does what he says he will do. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. And why does God do that? Why does he make and keep such great promises? Why does he choose to demonstrate his glory in salvation and judgment instead of just judgment? Why would God be so gracious? Why would he exercise his power for sinners like us? Why would he make and keep these promises? Well, not only does God save by his power, not only does he save in accordance with his promises, 
But Zechariah also knows the reason why. He saves because of his mercy. His motive is mercy. That's our third point this morning, that God's mercy motivates his salvation. It motivates his salvation. It's God's mercy. Look in verse 72. God has done this to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Look in verse 78. God has done this because of the tender mercy that he has towards us. So yes, God has mercy on an elderly couple. He gives them a child. But even more than that, he has mercy on those who face oppression. He has mercy on those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And God's mercy means he is compassionate, that he is eager to forgive, that he delights to redeem us, and he wants to rescue us from sin. I love what Psalm 103 says, starting in verse eight. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. Listen, if you know your need today, if you know how bad it is out there in our world, and if you know how bad it is in your own heart, you know the nature of your own sin, then those words that the Lord is gracious and merciful, that he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, those words are life. That is life for us. And that is a source of joy. Yes, to know that our God is able to save, that he has all power, to know that he has promised to save, that he's faithful and he always does what he says, but also know that this is motivated by his mercy towards you, that he is a compassionate father who cares for people like us who are sinful and weak and needy. This mission of mercy is described powerfully in verses 78 through 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the answer to our sorrow and our grief and our suffering that the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give us light as those who sit in darkness, to guide our feet into the way of peace, though now we are in the valley of the shadow of death. That is the answer. That is the key. That is the source of our joy, that this is our God, and this is what he's like, and this is what he is doing. This imagery here, of the sunrise visiting us from on high is taken directly from Malachi chapter four in verse two. This is the same passage that talks about Elijah coming to prepare the way for the Lord. So it hits close to home for for Zechariah because he sees it starting to happen. Malachi 4.2 says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings 
and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I know some of us are city slickers. We haven't seen calves take off out of the stall, but some of you know exactly what this looks like. There is a freedom, there's an energy, there's a joy. When there's total safety, you just want to kick your heels up and go. And when the sun rises, when the light of God's salvation dawns, his people are able to rejoice like that, just like the calves that go leaping from the stall. The same imagery of light dawning and and guiding people's way, it it reminds us of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. John's about to be born, which means Jesus is about to be born, which means the light is coming into the world. That's why Zechariah rejoices. Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. Those are the promises that God is keeping. He has mercy on the blind, mercy on those in darkness, mercy on those who are enslaved, mercy on those who suffer. And when he brings his salvation, when he shows his mercy, it brings joy. Zechariah sees it, and he sees that his son is right in the middle of it. His son is preparing the way, preparing the way for the Messiah, the one who will bring the blessing of Abraham, sit on David's throne, and forgive God's people for their sins. That's why he sings. It's an amazing thing. It's all because of God's tender mercy. We see here all of this expectation in this song, that God is doing it and he's about to do it. And we see expectation even as the text closes in verse 80, that the child grew, became strong in spirit. He's in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So all these promises are unfolding. And here's John the Baptist. He's like waiting just off stage. He's behind the curtain. And he's waiting for his moment where he will step onto the stage and he will kick off this amazing moment in history where these promises will be fulfilled. God's Messiah will come, the light of the world who brings salvation. And the Lord Jesus himself will be right there in the spotlight. Friend, this is a cause for joy, not just for Zechariah, but for us. We worship a merciful God who has compassion upon us, a God whose power and promise has brought about a great salvation for us. And the provision of salvation, this gift of grace, this is our source of sustained joy. Why don't you have joy this week? I had to ask myself this question. Why don't you have joy? What's in the way? What disappointment, what suffering, what sorrow, what sin is hindering your ability to fully enjoy the grace of God? Sometimes we see all those things as being bigger than Jesus. That's why I don't always have joy. Because all this stuff in my life feels big. If we want to have joy, even in the middle of all that hard stuff, you fill in the blank. We have to step back for a moment like Zechariah did and see the big picture of what God is doing because when we see the big picture of what God is doing, we see God and we see that he's merciful and he's powerful and he's faithful 
And that's when we are able to rejoice. Listen, the cause of Zechariah's great joy can be the source of your joy today as well. Have you considered the power of our God? The power that is able to save? Have you considered the faithfulness of our God? That he has never broken a promise. That he has kept every promise he's ever made. He's done it in the past. He's doing it in the present. He will do it in the future. Have you considered the mercy of our God? That he looks upon you with the compassion of a father, with a heart of tender mercy, that he knows your need, he sees your sorrow and your suffering, and he is moving towards you in love. Sometimes we struggle because we say, well, God's not doing anything powerful right now. My situation is still my situation. Sometimes we question God's faithfulness. God doesn't seem to be doing anything right now because he hasn't done what I think he should do. We forget God's faithfulness is him doing what he said he would do, not him doing what we ask him to do. Sometimes we forget that God loves us. We doubt his mercy. That's when we have to look to God's word and consider his power, consider his promise, consider his mercy towards you. And if your situation hasn't changed yet, consider what Zechariah is looking forward to. Because the coming of Jesus did not complete all of these promises. There's an aspect of the promise to Abraham that still has not yet come. Jesus reigns today in heaven, but he's not yet sitting on David's throne here. The forgiveness of sins is ours at the cross, but the fullness of that salvation, the fullness of walking in the light, the fullness of living in peace under the righteous reign of Christ, completely free from sin, that's something that awaits us after the resurrection. So part of what we must do is look at what God has done, but we also have to look forward, consider what God is doing and what God will do. Consider that one day, the morning star who was born in Bethlehem, he's going to return. And the darkness of this world will give way to an eternal day. And we who have received the promise, we who have been forgiven of our sins, we who have received mercy, we who believe, at that moment will enter into an eternal peace where we will worship him in holiness and in righteousness all our days without fear, without regret, without sorrow. Listen, joy is found in looking by faith to God, seeing him as he is, a God of power, a God of promise, a God of mercy who has extended this salvation to all who believe. So if you believe, all of that is yours. You can have joy today. And if you don't believe, you can look for joy in every other place that there may be. But I'm telling you, you won't find it. The joy you seek, the joy you need, if you're lost today, is found in Christ. It's found in knowing Christ and receiving the mercy and the grace of God. May you be filled today with a joyful recognition of God's mercy. Think about his mercy to you. And I hope that you will be overcome today, like Zechariah, by an awe-filled anticipation of what God promises to do. 
And that as that happens, that we as a church would offer a grateful act of worship, a celebration of God's saving power, which is the source of sustaining joy for us. Will you pray with me? Father, we are in awe this morning at your power, at your promises and your faithfulness, and also at your mercy that you would desire to save us, that you would have compassion on us. Lord, we thank you for this great gift, this hope that we have. Not a hope of wishful thinking, but a confident expectation that we know who you are, we know what you are doing, because you told us. And so we know that you will accomplish it. Lord, for those who are dealing with sorrow and suffering today, I pray that you would give them joy. Give them joy in the gospel. Give them joy in Christ. For those who deal with shame and and sin and discouragement, those who feel trapped, those who feel overwhelmed and weak, I pray that you would give them joy, not in their power, but in yours. Not in their faithfulness, but in yours. Lord, for those who deal with grief, I pray they would know your mercy today. That they would recognize the love that you have shown. Rather than looking to their circumstances as the proof of that love, I pray they would look to the cross and see the sending of your son Jesus into the world as the perfect and ultimate expression of your tender mercy. Lord, thank you. We are people who have a great need but we have such a great Savior who has met every need of ours. Lord Jesus, we worship your name. We exalt you as the light of the world, as the Messiah, as the key to joy and life and blessing. We worship your name and thank you. Amen.